unto his word. Father, we're grateful for these brothers and sisters who have come together to gather to worship you, not just in song and not just in various other elements, but even now as we open your word together, we ask, Lord, that this time together would in fact be worship from us to you. We ask, Father, that we would behold you in your glory and that beholding you in our glory, in your glory rather, our lives would be changed. Work this out in us, almighty King. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There is no one like our God. And we would do well to remember that. We would do well to remind ourselves of the reality that there is no one like our God regularly. And it's not only for his glory that we should do that, but it's also for our comfort that we should do that. Our perseverance in this life is strengthened by beholding the greatness and incomparability of God. It's when we forget that God is great. It's when we compare him to other things that our resolve and our faithfulness can falter. There is this kid's song that has been stuck in my head for a while called, My God is So Big. And it says this, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the rivers are his, the stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Such simple words with excellent theology. We would do well to have a childlike faith more often. What are the symptoms of forgetting that your God is so big, so strong and so mighty, and forgetting that there is nothing that your God cannot do? What are the symptoms? One symptom is despair. If God isn't almighty overall, then that is a scary and sad world to live in. If you don't have a theology that acknowledges that God not only can do what he wants, but also does do all that he wants, if you don't have that, then you will eventually be driven into despair, thinking that all of the suffering that you go through, all of the difficult things in this world are meaningless, and God is powerless to do anything. Another symptom of forgetting that your God is big is sin. If he is not an all-powerful God, then why even try to obey him? Why not seek comfort and security in the pleasures of this world? And a third symptom of forgetting that your God is big is complacency. Maybe it's not outright disobedience, but it's apathy born out of a discouragement from not realizing that God can do whatever he wants. If you don't have a theology that affirms that God accomplishes all of his purposes, why pray? Why share the gospel? Why do anything in faith at all? And this, brothers and sisters, is why it is crucial that you constantly behold your God. The way that you behold your God leads to practical implications in your everyday life. If you see God rightly, 
You're going to want to put your sins to death. If you see God rightly, then you will have victory over despair and depression, and you'll be filled with joy and peace. If you see God rightly, you will want to walk in righteousness. The people of Judah, the first audience of this book of Isaiah, also needed to be reminded that their God was big. And they needed, once again, a right view of their God so that they would put their hope in Him and not in idols. That's the point of our passage today. And this message from God to them is also the message from God to us. And as we go through this passage, our focus is going to be on beholding our God. And here's the overall structure. We'll first see a call to behold our God. And then we'll see two implications of beholding our God, hope and faithfulness. So let's look at first, number one, number one, a call to behold our God. A call to behold our God. After affirming in last week's passage that God's word is going to stand forever, which means that his promises are never going to fail, verse 9 says this, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So here Isaiah speaking, is speaking prophetically. In other words, though it is from Isaiah's perspective, he's writing on behalf of God. And so God, through Isaiah, says to his people, verse 9, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion. What is this idea of going up to a high mountain? We understand this somewhat. During Christmas, we sing, Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. So the idea is going up to a high place so that you can make an announcement that everyone can hear. Zion, in this verse, is used as another name for Jerusalem. It was actually a specific hill in Jerusalem called Mount Zion, uh, but it was also used synonymously with the city of Jerusalem. So Isaiah uses both Zion and Jerusalem in parallel with each other for emphasis. So Isaiah calls Zion, verse 9, herald of good news. You see, God's deliverance was not merely to be received, it was to be celebrated. It was to be shared. And the same is true for us in our deliverance. God saved us who believe in Jesus Christ. And that salvation was not merely to be received. It is to be celebrated. It is to be shared. We, like Zion, are heralds of good news. It was to Zion, by the way, it was to Jerusalem that 700 years later, the glad tidings of the coming of the Messiah into the world would be given. And it would be from Zion, from Jerusalem, that the gospel of Christ would be spread all the way here to Las Vegas and to all nations. But going back to Isaiah's context, the people of Judah were about to be brought out of exile from Babylon, and they were about to be brought back to their homeland. This was good news. That was good news worthy of being heralded. Heralds are messengers that are sent by higher authorities or rulers on behalf of the ruler 
in order to be able to deliver messages, authoritative messages, significant messages on behalf of the ruler. Zion was to act as herald of God. The city was to deliver God's message to all of God's people. Are we not heralds of the Most High God ourselves? Do we not have this message from him in our possession? And is it not our duty to deliver his message to all who will listen? Yes, brothers and sisters, we are heralds of our king. Not only was Zion to go on up to a high mountain, but Isaiah also says to her in verse 9, notice, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. So they weren't, Jerusalem wasn't to go up to the hill and just whisper good news or go up there and say it with weakness. She was to lift up her voice with strength. That's how good news is properly delivered. When my wife was found to be pregnant with Elora, the way that we announced this pregnancy to my family was by having my brother-in-law text the family group chat. <laughs> uh, so he texted this, quote, hey, real quick, heads up guys, Ed and Megs are pregs. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason we did that is like, why would you do that? Why would you text your family? It was, it was because over a year before that, they incorrectly thought we were doing a pregnancy announcement. We were just having them over for dinner. And I said something like, wouldn't it be funny if we had Brandon, my sister's husband, be the one to announce that we're pregnant in a text? So not even one of my siblings, one of my siblings' spouses, right? And my mom thought that was a funny idea, which is a green, a green light to do that. So Brandon texted my family that we were pregnant. It's a funny idea because good news like that shouldn't normally be announced like that, right? When people are heralds of good news, they should lift up their voices with strength. Which is why sometimes when you sing and Pastor Rolo was not satisfied with the strength of your singing, he'll ask you to do it again. Because it's good news that we're singing. How timid we can be when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's a message that deserves not our blasé, but our strength. No amens. Brothers and sisters, we are ambassadors of Christ who have been called to be his messengers, and the message is good. People are going to reject it, but it doesn't change the fact that the message is good, and it deserves to be delivered with strong voices and joyful voices. But there's probably something else besides joy going on in our verse, though. The idea of Zion's lifting up her voice with strength is that they could do it boldly. They could do it courageously. And that's why at the end of verse 9 it says, Lift it up, fear not. Why might they have feared? And why do they not need to fear? Maybe they might have feared this message because they were in exile under a much stronger adversary. If they were wrong about this message that they were delivering, that God was going to come and rescue them, then they might face the consequences of being accused of rebellion for spreading this message. But the Lord is saying to them through Isaiah, you don't need to fear. 
My word stands forever. You are coming out, and you can lift up your voice with strength, heralding this good news. And by the way, might we sometimes be timid with the good news that we have? Might we be fearful of lifting it up? Certainly we can. We have the flesh. We're struggling with that. But we need not fear. We need not fear, first of all, because the good news that we have is true. It is true that all sinners who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ will be forgiven. So there's no fear of being wrong about that. We also need not fear because the worst that people can do to us is promote us to heaven. Unlike God, who can destroy body and soul by casting them both into hell, the worst man can do is destroy our bodies, which are temporary anyway. When Christ returns, we're going to be raised with imperishable ones. We also need not fear because God's word is powerful. We're not the ones doing any conversion out there, brothers and sisters. It is God through his word by the working of the Holy Spirit We need not fear. So we, like Zion, can lift up our good news with strength. We can fear not. We can lift up our voices, for we too are heralds of good news, the greatest news. Zion, Jerusalem, was to go on up to a high mountain as a herald of good news and lift up her voice with strength and fearlessness. And associated with heralding the good news is proclaiming the glory of God. The end of verse 9, look. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Remember that Judah is the southern kingdom that remained, right? By this point, the northern kingdom of Israel was all but assimilated into Assyria. So it was to the cities of Judah, the remnant, that Jerusalem was to say, behold your God. God. Behold him indeed. And notice, by the way, again, these words in verse 9, your God. It wasn't just behold God, it's behold your God. Behold this God who has covenanted with you. Behold this God who maintains his covenant faithfulness to you in spite of your covenant unfaithfulness to him. Behold your God. And their God, who is our God, was surely one to behold. God's glorious attributes and his deliverance are inseparable. His glorious attributes and his deliverance are inseparable. He does what he wants. I'm sorry, he does what he does because of who he is. He shows who he is by what he does. And therefore, when we talk about good news, it is nearly synonymous with proclaiming the glory of God. Consider, for example, what God was going to do for these exiles in Babylon. What did what what he was going to do speak to? It spoke to the power of God, his sovereignty, his faithfulness, his loving kindness, his mercy, his grace, and more. So his actions and his attributes are inseparable. And similarly, when we declare the good news of Jesus Christ, the ultimate good news, it is inseparable from the glory of God. 
God is sovereign and omniscient, sending the Savior at just the right time. He is omnipotent, able to make a child who was fully God and fully man appear in Mary's womb miraculously. He is all-wise, directing the entire life of Jesus Christ. He is tender, tending to his flock like a shepherd through Christ's ministry. He is just, punishing our sins upon the cross. He is triumphant, raising Jesus from the dead. He is helpful, giving us the Holy Spirit to aid us and to comfort us. And he is faithful, promising his return. We cannot separate the gospel from the glory of God. God's glory necessitated the gospel, and the gospel reflects his glory. Thus, we can say, and not just to the cities of Judah, but to every city, to every town, every tribe in the world, behold your God. What does it mean to behold anyway? It means to look at him and to see him with a sense of awe, wonder, and delight. God is worthy of being beheld. And whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning or not, we invite you to behold him. He is magnificent. And he invites you into peace with him and fellowship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior. And in the end, we're going to be able to say, as in Isaiah 25, 9, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What are some practical ways that we can continually behold our God? The first practical way to continually behold your God is to continue to make it a habit to worship with God's people like you're doing right now. This is good. What you're doing is good. Psalm 22, 22 says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. That's what we're doing here together. There is great value, there's great encouragement in gathering together to praise God and, from, and hearing from each other about the greatness of God. You're listening to it right now as the word of God is being proclaimed. We sing about the greatness of God to each other. You recognize that, right? When we're singing the songs biblically, it's not just to God, but we're also singing truth to each other. That helps us to behold our God. Another practical way that you can continually behold your God is by being part of a discipleship group where we take what we heard in here and we help each other apply it out there. When the D groups gather throughout this week, they're going to recall together the greatness of our God and they're going to help each other to behold him. Another practical way of beholding your God is by reading your Bible daily. God's special revelation of himself for his people is contained right in these pages. And led by the Holy Spirit of God and reading with a new heart, you're going to behold your God in this book. And still another way is just observing him in his creation and providence. 
Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The glory is of what we can see in the skies, both during the day and night, declare God's glory. We can behold him also in creation. When you see a beautiful sunset, that is a demonstration of God's glory. In John Piper's massive volume called Providence, he points out that God not only paints a new sunset every day, but he paints sunsets all day, every day, because the sun is setting somewhere all the time. You can behold your God in creation. You can also behold him in providence. In other words, what he's doing in the world. When you pay attention and you keep yourself keenly aware of what God is doing in every circumstance, you behold his glory that way as well. It's really not a bad thing when someone says that was a total God thing. It's not bad. That's an acknowledgement of God's providence. But here's the thing. Everything is a total God thing. (laughs) Nothing happens apart from his divine providence. All events happen according to his good purposes, even the hard things that happen in the world. God works all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And even what man means for evil, God means for good. So when you're attentive, when you pay attention to what God allows and ordains and what he doesn't allow, when you're watching the unfolding of God's good purposes, that's another way that you can behold your God. But what are the implications of beholding our God? Now that we've seen his exhortation for us to behold our God, let's look next at number two, two implications of what we've beheld. Two implications of what we've beheld. And the first implication is that, A, we can be hopeful. We can be hopeful. We're going to spend most of the rest of our time here in this bullet. Verse 10 continues. Notice, read with me. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Just as a quick observation, in the, in the ESV, if that's what you're using, you may notice uh, that instead of the word Lord being in small caps, it's the word God that is in small caps. In other words, the first letter is capitalized. They're all capitalized except they're smaller after the first letter. That's what we call small caps. Now, why is it the case that this time, instead of it being Lord in small caps, it's God that's in small caps? Whenever we see the word LORD in small caps, meaning again that the whole name is capitalized, but all the other letters are smaller than the first capital, whenever you see that, that is what's translated from God's revealed name to his people, Yahweh. Most English translations follow the tradition that goes all the way back to ancient Hebrew, even in Jesus' time, to not say God's name, but to instead replace it with the word LORD. And that was out of a desire to be reverent and to avoid using God's name in vain. But when you see instead the word God in small caps next to the word Lord, it's because the Hebrew word for Lord is placed before God's name. 
So in this verse, literally, we would read, the Lord Yahweh comes with might. Okay? So there is benefit in this case of not translating Yahweh as Lord because now when we see those two words together, we can actually see the emphasis of the words Lord and Yahweh. The one who was coming was the Lord. He is the Lord of Lords. There were other lords, there were other rulers at that time. Nebuchadnezzar, for example, could be considered a lord. But God is the Lord. He rules over all. So when the Lord is coming for you, that means no one can stop him. But not only is he here called the Lord, but he's also referred to as the Lord Yahweh. It is the God, it is the Lord who introduced himself to his people by giving his name to Moses. It is his covenant name that reminds his people that he is who he is. Behold, the Lord God, verse 10, comes with might. This is how God operates. He is strong, he is mighty, and he acts accordingly. Now, how would he come with might in this particular situation? In this case, he would use King Cyrus of Persia to go in and overthrow Babylon, which Babylon was a formidable nation with a very strong fortified city. So he would use King Cyrus from Persia to go in and free the exiles to go back to their own lands. Now, you might feel for some reason that working through King Cyrus isn't really a display of God's might. Perhaps you would have rather seen an angel go in there and free the people, or perhaps you want to see another parting of the sea. And to that we might ask you, why don't you go try to get the strongest nation in the world to do your bidding? Why don't you also do it in such a way that they don't even know that they're accomplishing your purposes for you? For God to free his people providentially through the free and selfish actions of King Cyrus of Persia is a display of God's great might. Think about all of the pieces that would have had to fall into place in order for Babylon to be overthrown. Cyrus the Great of Persia had to rise. He needed to have military successes. He needed to have success with alliances. He needed to have a strategic vision. He also needed to have enough drive to want to conquer Babylon. Babylon had to be weakened. By the time Cyrus arrived, there had been internal struggles. There had been weak leadership. There was dissatisfaction among some of its population. Even that set it up so that Cyrus could come and conquer them. Other nations had to be willing to ally with Persia. Cyrus joined forces with other regional powers which made them a strong united front against Babylon. And all of this had to happen at just the right time. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God's might is so great that all human actions fall within his eternal decree. All that he has decreed from eternity will come to pass. And he will work out every detail by his providential hand. Yes, God came for Judah with might. 
verse 10 goes on to say of God, and his arm rules for him. His arm rules for him. The phrase, his arm, is referring to his power. He rules with power. And, and this phrase also carries the idea, God is sufficient for himself. He doesn't rule with someone else's arm. He, his arm rules for him. He doesn't need anyone's assistance. The last part of verse 10 says this. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. What does this mean? It means that he is coming to reward his people even though they don't deserve a reward. He is coming to graciously give them freedom that they don't deserve. And that, by the way, is true for us also in an even greater way. God not only saved us, but is going to reward us with heavenly rewards, even though we have done nothing to deserve them. Even the good that we do is from him to begin with. And yet he's going to graciously reward us anyway. Not only was God coming to reward his people, but he was coming to recompense, to repay their enemies. Deuteronomy 32:35 says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. This is a kind of recompense that Babylon would not want. However, they doled out the wickedness that was directed at God's people. God was going to pay them back for that. Trust us, friends. You don't want to receive God's recompense. Instead, receive his gracious reward by trusting in the Savior whom he has sent, Jesus Christ. Verse 11 goes on. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. These words are delightful. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. What a beautiful picture that is. God tends us. He cares for us. He protects us. Though God is a master and we are slaves, though he is the king and we are the subjects, he's also our father. He's our Abba. He's also our friend. And he's also our shepherd. God tends to us like a shepherd tends his sheep. God is, Psalm 80 verse 1 says, the shepherd of Israel. And Christ likewise is, John 10, 11, the good shepherd. The one who comes against his people's enemies with ruling might is the same one who tends to his people like a shepherd. His care is so kind that he even takes particular care of those who need it most. In this illustration, lambs and pregnant sheep. Look at verse 11, how he's going to gather the lambs in his arms. What a lovely thought. He's going to gather the lambs in his arms. In verse 11, furthermore, He's going to carry them in his bosom. He holds his lambs closely. He is not a shepherd that just goads his sheep with a staff to keep them moving. To those lambs who aren't quite as strong as the rest of the flock, he picks them up and walks with them in his bosom. He's also, verse 11, gently, 
He will also gently lead those that are with young. He is gentle. He's careful with the pregnant sheep, not letting them be harmed so that they would lose their young. Notice that God leads them gently. Gentleness is strength restrained. The stronger you are, the more meaningful your gentleness is. God is all-powerful. Ergo, no one restrains his strength more than God himself. He leads those that are with young gently. Now, what's probably not being said here is that God specifically cares for children and pregnant women, though it's certainly true that he does care for them. The picture that's being painted here is that God is like a caring shepherd who tends to his flock as one who loves them, who knows them, and cares for their every need. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. In verse 12, we read this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Consider how much water exists in the world. 71% of the earth's surface is covered by the world's oceans. Imagine for a moment driving east from here on Spring Mountain, okay? making a left on Rainbow, making another left on Sahara, then making another left to come back down here to the church building. That's about one square mile. The Pacific Ocean alone is more than 63 million of those. One ocean, 63 millions of those square miles. Earlier this week, we heard of a tragedy of a lost submersible in which five lives were lost. And whenever something like that happens, it reminds us just how vast and unknowable the oceans are. Yet God measured not just the oceans, but all the waters in the hollow of his hand. Verse 12. If we were to gather all of the water in the world, it would be about... 3 sextillion, 89 quintillion, 172 quadrillion, 640 trillion gallons of water. God can hold all of that in the hollow of his hand. Of course, God doesn't have an actual hand, but that, what that means is that God is even more vast than we could even imagine. Verse 12 also implies that God marked off the heavens with a span. This is talking about measuring something with your fingers spread out. God measured the universe and the heavens itself with the length of his hand. It also says in verse 12 that he enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. In Isaiah's time, measuring goods was very important for trade. So just as a merchant might pour spice into a measure... God enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. One estimate says that there are one trillion tons of dust on the earth. God enclosed it all in a measure. 
It also says that he, verse 12, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. When you see mountains and hills in the Bible, they're represented in the Bible as things that are massive and immovable, unless you have the faith, the sight of a mustard seed. And yet for God, he weighed those mountains on a scale. Mount Everest alone can be estimated to weigh 4.1 quintillion pounds. Again, it's metaphorical, but you get the idea. Mountains are nothing for God to lift up and put on a scale. Perhaps also implied in this verse is God's work of creation and his work of providence. Everything was made perfectly for the flourishing of life. If we didn't have the right amount of water, combined with the right distance from the sun, the size of our planet, and these geological processes, this planet would not be habitable. If we didn't have the right amount of dust, then it could disrupt cloud formations and climate dynamics, affecting the stability of this environment. If our mountain ranges were significantly different, then that could disrupt the balances of our ecosystems. God in his wisdom measured them all. Whereas God can measure all of these massive works of creation, who has measured God? Verse 13 asks this question, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? There are many scientists, not all, but many scientists reject God because they can't measure him. And they're right. They cannot measure him. God is immeasurable. God, on the other hand, can measure all that he wants to measure. And in fact, he doesn't even need to measure because he knows all things. He knows all measurements. But who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Now, why does Isaiah use the phrase spirit of the Lord here? The word spirit in the Old Testament is often associated with wisdom and understanding. For example, Isaiah 11, verse 2 says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So here, it's likely referring to God's wisdom, his understanding. And that would make sense with the second part of verse 13, which then asks, or what man shows him his counsel? Counsel is referring to God's wisdom, God's decision-making. Who shows God his wisdom? Who shows him his decision-making? Verse 14 continues, Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? All of these questions are rhetorical, but just in case it's not clear to you, the answer is no one. God didn't consult with anyone. Nobody made him understand. Nobody taught God the path of justice. Justice is based on who he is. Nobody taught God knowledge. All knowledge comes from him. Nobody showed him the way of understanding. When it comes to us, we constantly need counsel. We constantly lack understanding and need to be taught justice and knowledge. We need to be shown the way of understanding. But none of that is so with our God. 
Now, why is God highlighting these aspects of himself through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Judah and then to us? It's as if to say, Judah, God is coming for you. The great and immeasurable God, the all-powerful and all-knowing God is coming for you. Does that give you comfort, dear saints? Jesus, the Savior, is coming back for you. The great and immeasurable Jesus, the all-powerful and all-knowing Jesus is coming back for you. And he's with you even now to the end of the age. What a comforting thought. Verse 15 says this, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Consider for a moment how vast this world is, how many nations there are. Consider how powerful some of these nations are. They're all like a drop from a bucket. Picture a bucket, put some water in it in your head, pour it all out, put it back down and look at one of those drops on the bottom. That's all the nations are to God. That's it. They are, verse 15 says, they're accounted as the dust on the scales. They're not even what's being measured on the scales. They're just leftover dust on the scales. Dust that doesn't even tip the scales. He goes on at the end of verse 15. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like a fine dust. Maybe coastal regions were usually larger and they were more prominent because of resources, trade, commerce, and so on. But even those coastlands can be taken up like fine dust by God. Continuing on in this idea, verse 16 says, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Lebanon was known for its trees. It was known for its mighty cedars. Yet those cedars, plentiful as they were, would not be enough to fuel an altar for God. Neither were Lebanon's beasts, bountiful as they were, enough for a burnt offering. With all of the, the animals that Lebanon had, it would not be enough to appease our great and holy God. And to put a bow on this thought, verse 17 says this, verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Brethren, nations are nothing before him. They are less than nothing. And friends, we live in a world where some of our greatest stress comes from nations. Our nation stresses us out. Russia stresses us out. China stresses us out. Sometimes North Korea and Iran stress us out. But to our God, nations are nothing. They are less than nothing. Isn't that the kind of fact that you'd need to hear if you were a Judahite stuck in a great nation? Matthew Henry says this, when God has work to do, he values not either the assistance or the resistance of any creature. They are all vanity. In other words, God doesn't need help to accomplish his purposes, and nothing can stop him from doing so, not even the great Babylonian empire. 
Babylon was less than nothing to our God. And all the nations today, likewise, combined, are accounted by him as less than nothing, as emptiness. Don't worry, saints, that's who's coming back for us. And that should make us hopeful. That should make us fully assured that God is going to do exactly what he said he would do. Are you hopeful? Do you have a strong confidence in God that he's going to accomplish all of his purposes on our behalf? If not, remember to behold him. Remember who he is. Remember what he's done already. Nothing can thwart God's purposes. So the first implication of what we behold in God is that we can be hopeful. And the second implication, much more quickly, is B, we should be faithful. We should be faithful. Verse 18 asks a great question. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? God is incomparable. But that didn't stop the Israelites from being guilty of chronic polytheism, worshiping multiple gods. That doesn't always stop us from worshiping our own idols. But nothing compares to God. And we need to be reminded of that this morning. To whom will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? Verse 19, an idol. An idol? A craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. This is a powerful verse. What are we going to compare God to? An idol? Idols were man-made. Somebody would hire a goldsmith to overlay their idol with gold. They'd make silver chains to decorate the idol to make it look more splendorous. And then people would compare that to the God of the universe? Such as the hubris of man, as if we could create our own gods to worship in our image. And people placed so much care into making these idols. Verse 20 says this, He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So even the poorest people who couldn't even afford to make an offering were careful to choose the best wood with which to make their idols. A wood that would last, a wood that would not rot. Do you see the irony here, guys? They needed to make sure that the idol that they were worshiping wouldn't rot. The God of the universe was and is and is to come. Yet people reject him. The people also would seek out these skillful craftsmen to set up an idol that wouldn't move. Their false gods couldn't even keep themselves propped up. The people needed to make sure that these idols didn't fall over. I'd ask forgiveness for the sarcasm, but I'm just telling you what Isaiah is saying here. I'm conveying to you his sarcasm. How silly it is for people to make idols and compare them to God. It's not just silly, it's offensive. And that's why making a golden calf while Moses was gone for two minutes was such a terrible act of defiance and idolatry. 
which led to the deaths of tens of thousands of people. That's why Israel's idolatry got them destroyed. That's why Judah's idolatry got them exiled. And lest we think ourselves better than the idolaters in this passage, remember that we ourselves have idols. The New Testament calls covetousness in Colossians 3.5 idolatry. Our sinful desire for that which God did not give us is idolatry. Another example of an idol can be money. Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We end up comparing things or people that we want to the immeasurable God. And we often choose our idols over him. What would bewitch Israel and Judah to worship false gods when God was in their very midst? One common reason was that the nations around them worshipped other gods. The way of thinking at the time was that every nation had their own god or gods. Other nations even acknowledged that Yahweh was Israel's god, but these other nations thought that they had their own gods. But the Israelites were prone to thinking in that same way, and they tended to worship the false gods of the people around them, especially when they intermarried with people from other nations. Don't marry unbelievers, Christians. Side note. So they were influenced negatively by others worshiping false gods. Tied to all that was materialism, prosperity, just as the other nations did, Israel had a tendency to attribute their prosperity to false gods. So for the sake of riches and prosperity, Israel tended to be unfaithful to Yahweh to serve these other gods. And generally speaking, they would simply forget about God and what he did for them. They would forget him, they'd forsake him until he would discipline them to bring them back. Now we can and should learn a lot from their failures. 1 Corinthians 10.11, in fact, says this, says of their idolatry, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Are we not prone to turning to the idols of this world? Let's just define idols, just simply, as anything that would take our attention away from Christ and following him. Let's call those idols. Let's consider modern idols like material possessions and consumerism, fame and popularity, success and achievement, technology and social media, self-image and physical appearance, relationships and romantic partners, entertainment and leisure, power and control, etc., None of these is intrinsically evil, but we have a tendency to allow them to remove our focus from God. We devote time and energy and money to these idols without any regard for God. Thus, theologian John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. And in large part, we run toward these idols. Why? Because the world tells us we should. We are heavily influenced by the world around us. We tend to try to find fulfillment and joy 
in the things in which the world finds fulfillment and joy. And the result is that we forget God. And when we forget God, it pushes us further into idolatry. Thank God for the grace he shows us in Jesus Christ. That even our wicked idolatry is forgiven through faith in him. Friends, idolatry is a result of a failure to behold our God. Conversely, positively, when we behold our God, it will remind us that we ought to be faithful to him. What will we compare with God? Our material possessions? Our social standing? Our relationships? Our careers? They're idols. They're man-made. Will we overlay them with gold and cast silver chains for them? Will we go out of our way to make sure that our idols don't fall over? Brothers and sisters, nothing in this world and no one in this world compares to our God. We should find our hope, our peace, our joy, our satisfaction, our fulfillment in Him. And the only times we would not do that is when we fail to behold Him as He is. God satisfies the longing soul. Whoever comes to Jesus will not hunger, and whoever believes in him will never thirst. He is the fulfillment of all that which we long for. Whenever we turn to our idols, we settle for less. And in the end, our idols will leave us feeling empty. So we should be faithful to the God whom we behold and he will not leave us wanting. In this passage, we, see a, we saw a call to behold our God, and we saw that if we properly behold our God, then we can be hopeful, and we should be faithful. God is so amazing, friends. He's so amazing. There is none like him. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and everywhere present. He is good, just, and holy. He is kind, faithful, and compassionate. He is loving, merciful, and gracious. He gives us all that we need, whether the need is temporal or eternal. He gives us every bite of that potluck that we're going to eat. And he gives us his son as our eternal sustenance. He gave us life on this earth. And for all who believe in Jesus, he provides life everlasting. Why would we turn to anything else? And why would we be without hope? God can do whatever he pleases, and whatever he pleases, he does. He has never failed to accomplish any aspect of his eternal decree. He has decreed that all of his people, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, will not only be forgiven now and sustained now, but he will also bring those weary Christians all the way to the very end. And when he returns, he's going to raise those who have passed away back to life and bring them into his eternal kingdom to dwell with him forever and ever. And he's going to lead us there as our kind and gentle shepherd. He's going to lead us to our green pasture and our still waters. He's going to gather us up in his arms and hold us to his bosom. He's going to lead us out of our exile and bring us to our homeland. The mountains are his. 
The rivers are his. The stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Let's pray. That is a blip of the praise that you deserve, O God. Bow our hearts before you, almighty King, and help us to behold you that we would be filled with hope and a desire by your Spirit to be faithful to you forevermore. God, you have been faithful to us. You have showed us your strength. We know by your promises that you will do what you said you will do. Help us to hold fast and behold you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.